Okay, welcome back to Hawaii Real, everybody. I'm your host, Io Ke'ehu. And I want to throw out a special thank you to our new sponsor, Hawaiian Springs Water. They are providing the refreshment for our podcast today. And I have a special guest today, Pat Psyche, former congresswoman from the United States Senate and here in Hawaii. And she was from the Republican Party. And this is more of a shout out to a lot of the younger audience members here and I wanted to bring you on the show to kind of touch base and get you connected to the younger generations, the millennials and, and so forth with getting involved in politics and what uh, being involved in politics and not just being in a political office, but voting and being knowledgeable about topics and subjects and what it means to be Democrat, what it means to be Republican and vice versa. And how things are changing uh, over the course of the last 50 years that you've been in politics, right? Well, first of all, let me commend you. Thank you. On taking the time and the trouble to learn about what the other side is, besides the majority Democrat Party, which has ruled this state for as long as I can remember. Right. And that uh, we, as Republicans, have been we tried to be the loyal opposition, and it's been a struggle, and we've had some good times, and we've had some bad times. Mm -hmm. As long as people are intelligent and want to improve things in our community, there will always be room for discussion. There will mm -hmm. always be room for, uh, shall we say, give and take in the uh, public arena. And the public arena, of course, is what I call the legislature. Mm. I mean, it's not a spectator sport. It's a serious, serious condition where people of various races, backgrounds, ages, come together and share ideas on how to solve a problem. And believe me, we have problems. We'll always have problems. Sure. But I seem to want to focus on the new young people who are mm -hmm. coming up because many of them feel like they can't do very much. Right. Or that the little that they can do doesn't matter. And so they tend to read history. They tend to listen to opinions on TV or mm -hmm. read the newspaper. That's a big they one. shrug their shoulders and go out and watch the football game. So whenever I can get a group of young people together mm -hmm. to get them to focus on what the future involves for them, then I can get their attention. And, uh, and they're interested. Young people are interested. They just don't know what to do about it. And they don't know how to go about it. Right. So how come, or do you know why that has happened with, between the disconnect between the older generation politically and the younger generations coming up politically where there is that disconnect where they don't know what to do or what's going on necessarily? Well, I have to bend a little bit on that because I have to then focus on the fact that the schools are not concentrating oh. on what is history. What Do you know that many of the schools have dropped social studies? Yes, and they've dropped civics and, and stuff like that. And they dropped civics. Mm -hmm. And that's history. Yes. And so the young people have nothing to look back on to use as examples or as samples of what can be. Mm -hmm. And so they're not interested anymore uh, in how government runs because they don't know 
what happened before. Right. And that, to me, is the uh, great fault of uh, our education community. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can be, it can be solved with a change of focus. Mm -hmm. But the young people that I speak to uh, understand that, and they, when you focus on it, mm -hmm. so I tend to want to get their minds focused on something that is rather boring for them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they, oh, American problems, social studies. Especially as they're younger, but as they get older, those boring issues become very You're important. You're darn right, because they have to pay taxes. Oh, yeah, that's that you too, know? yes. They, they're going to end up paying the taxes. Mm -hmm. and what are taxes for? Taxes are to continue the government under which they live. Yes. And they support it. Mm -hmm. And so the minute that they have to then participate, their interest perks up. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's still troublesome to see what's happening in our community where one party has control yes. and the other party has not done as much as they could have or should have mm -hmm. or would have if they get organized for a change. Mm. So I think the Republican Party is constantly in turmoil and trying to seek a way to find a niche in the community where they can be heard. And so the party exists. Yes. But the party leadership has not been what we would like all the time. What we, would be, what would be the ideal situation or the ideal leadership or person to come into the Republican Party? Well, you know, you can't pinpoint any one mm. person. Right. It has to be a general feeling. Maybe unrest will do it. Maybe people mm. who are right. not happy about the condition mm -hmm. that we're in maybe they will then mobilize and find an outlet, a way by which they can express themselves. And I'm hoping that they'll find the Republican Party is a means by which they can be heard. Right. So I continue to do my share <laughs> and keep the party awake and aware and alive. Mm -hmm. And it's been a struggle for, my, for me for many years. Sure. People ask me, uh, quite often, why on earth did you ever become a Republican? You know? Mm -hmm. After all, I was, I'm Japanese-American. I was born in Hilo. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't my, fit the stereotype of yeah, a Republican. Uh, my grandparents were born in Japan. Mm -hmm. They worked in the cane fields. My father was a clerk at Amfac, which was the largest company in, in the state of Hawaii. Uh, and and basically, they lived a, a comfortable life, you know, not rich, not poor, just average, okay. but comfortable. Right. So you would expect that they would be Democrats, because that's the way it was. If you did not work for a big company uh, as an individual, you were part of a union. Mm -hmm. and the unions were organized and. Uh, very much so, and with the union leadership tending to join the Democrat Party, you had this base of the Democrat Party, which right. was the union. So here I am, growing up in Hilo, went to school at the University of Hawaii, 
All my classmates are Democrats, so to speak. And so I then realized that I have to take a stand somewhere mm -hmm. along the line because I was quite unhappy with several things, quite a few things, to tell you the truth. So you're finally putting your foot down yeah. and going against the grain that everybody else is going. That's right. right. And uh, and so they told me, people told me, well, then if you're then that unhappy, why don't you try to fix it mm -hmm. and join the Democrat Party and see what you can do there. And so I said, well, that's one way of doing it, but then I can go to the Republican Party because they seem to tend to follow the philosophy that I have, and that is to be fiscally responsible, mm -hmm. to recognize individual freedom, mm -hmm. and to be sure that ideas are open, above board, and transparent. And this is all you're you're thinking of this back in the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> in the 50s, right? So in the 50s, you're 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 thinking all these things, and the exact same things that you've just said are things that we're thinking. Of, several people are thinking about today. Today, at yeah. the same, you know, I'm in my 40s. It's like it's, yeah. we're going through the same thing. Like that has yeah. either either it hasn't changed or the problems are reoccurring. No, it's um, it's actually the problems are the same. Mm. in different facets. Yeah. For instance, I'm, I'm growing up, I'm a college student. I want to become a teacher. Okay. Okay. So naturally I would tend to go to the college of education. So I go to the college of education and I look at the curriculum and by golly, all they do is teach me how to teach, not what to teach, how to teach. I see. So I decided, well, wait a minute. If I want to become a teacher and be well-rounded and provide for my students a kaleidoscope of subject areas, then I've got to be educated as such. So I went to the College of Sciences. And so with a minor in education. Okay. So I went to the College of Sciences where I could take the courses that I wanted for subject matter. So you're actually learning the subject and yeah, then as a learn side, the subject learning how That's to teach. Right. Good. And then at the same time, having a minor in education so that I will qualify to be a teacher according to the rules and regulations of the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. But I thought to myself, this is not right. As an individual then, why do I have to make the decision that I cannot go to the College of Education because they're not doing right as I think they should. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if the day ever comes when I can change this, I will do so. Well, the day came when I first got elected to the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. That's another story. I mean, I'm following the education thing now. Right. The first thing I did was to ask to be on the on the uh, committee on lower education. Because you, you actually were a teacher for a, a small time, right? Oh, yes. I was a teacher. I taught... Well, it's, it's interesting because <laughs> I graduated with a Bachelor of Science, mm -hmm. but with enough education credits to qualify as a teacher. Okay. Okay. But in the meantime, I had the good fortune of being 
uh, elected, uh, or not elected, but I was chosen as uh, a Kapalapala queen, you know, a beauty queen, okay? Okay. Okay. And I did that uh, just because I thought it might be a, an interesting, exciting thing to do, and my classmates at Halilang Lima, where I stood, mm -hmm. where, where I was uh, a uh, occupant, wanted me to participate. So I won the contest, for heaven's nice. sake. Well, bully was great because it opened the door to all kinds of experiences. Uh, with the uh, winning of the beauty contest, I got offers by uh, Rudy Tong, who was starting Trans-Pacific Airlines. TPA, wow. Trans-Pacific Airlines, TPA. Mm -hmm. He was starting the airlines. And he needed people to fly uh, on the weekends because his regular uh, stewardesses, they were called, not right. flight attendants, they right. were called Back stewardesses. In the day. Yes. Right. yes, from Monday to Friday. And he needed people to fly on Saturdays and Sundays. And he wanted a different face, different look. So he came up to the university and got all of us Kapalapala types mm. and hired us to work on the weekends. And we got double pay when we had when the lava flows. When, oh, wow. Yes. When the, when the volcano erupted, we got double pay. Uh -huh. And that helped me earn my way through college. Nice. And my parents, of course, almost died every time the eruption occurred. Because in those days... You didn't want you near it. Yeah. We could... The pilots could fly into the crater. <laughs> into the crater. And give the tourists such an exciting ride. But then, you know, the chances... Uh, it's, not a, place you wanna, yeah, it's not a place you want to crash. <laughs> so we all got double pay. Nice. Double pay for that. Hazard but, pay. <laughs> yeah. Hazard pay. Yeah. But nevertheless, after that, then I was hired by uh, John Fox, who was the president of Punahou School. Punahou School mm. had nothing but mainland teachers on their staff, their faculty. So you were no one of the first local locals? teachers. Interesting. Full time. Interesting. Yeah. And so, but he came up to the university and he interviewed me and he said, you know, it's time for us to ask some local people to be full-time teachers at Punahou because this business of hiring only mainland teachers mm -hmm. is not very good. So, but I said, but I'm not going to graduate until next year. Mm -hmm. He said, that's okay. Sign this contract. And after you graduate, you come over. Wow. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, it is yeah, awesome. That was nice. So, by golly, then I graduated. Went to Punahou, and I was known as uh, the local girl in shorts. I taught <laughs> PE. <laughs> anyway, that started my teaching career. Nice. But nevertheless, after then, after quite a few years in the public school as well, and after getting married and having children and all that, and decided to run for office. Mm. And I, that's another story as to why I ran for office. Okay. But I did. We'll get into that and later. I got elected in 1968 to the Constitutional Convention. It mm -hmm. was the first convention after statehood. Right. Okay. So we had no constitution up until then. Mm -hmm. So you guys are creating it from scratch. That's right. Uh -huh. From scratch. And it was the greatest bipartisan convention you ever saw. Clinton Porteous, a Republican, was president of the convention. That's how the bipartisan it was. So a lot more cooperation back then? Oh, it was amazing. 
And that's how we created the community colleges. We set up separate judiciary, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, a uh, Department of Education that was a total state d- department because we wanted to be sure that the kids in the Honoka would be receiving the same amount of support right. as people in Honolulu. Right. And so we created this uh, great uh, school system. And I can go on and on and on. But we, anyway, that's how we created the uh, Const- the Constitutional Convention, wrote the state constitution. I was so proud of that. Nice. I mean, it was to me, I mean, participating in history. Right, because you're uh, creating the yes. foundation of the state. Yes, yeah. yes. So then my fellow teachers, with whom I had become very friendly, thought that I should run for, for office. And there you go. Well, you know, here I had three kids already, and the question was whether I should really do this. But my husband and the children all felt that if that's what I can do... Go do it, Mom. Then I should do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go do it, Mom. So they stood on the highway with a sign and waved and, you know, did all the things that you have to do in in a campaign. All right, so we're just talking about uh, your role and your pivotal role in... Uh, education here in Hawaii and creating um, the Department of Education also? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I, th- this this was a turning point for me because uh, I realized that things had to change. If I was unhappy with the way the curriculum, curriculum at the right. University of Hawaii College of Education was to be changed, it's got to come from the top. Right. So as a member of the Committee on Education, I asked for a meeting with the dean of the College of Education, okay. Dean Everly. And is that University of Hawaii? At the University of Hawaii. Okay. And they all came down, and I explained to them my concern that their curriculum had a focus on to teach, I mean, uh, I mean on how to teach, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. on how to teach, not what to teach. And that as a teacher going into this arena of providing education for young people, mm-hmm. it's not only the fact that I can't teach them, they have to know what to teach them. Right. So I think it's time that you people real, uh, recognized that, that there is need to be a change in your, the curriculum, the focus of your curriculum. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Dean Everly raised his eyebrows and he said... Uh, We'll take a good look at it. I think you've got a point. Uh, I think we've been taking things for granted, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll see what we can do. And they did change. They did change. So I felt much better that at least the students following me are going to have the opportunity to have some knowledge of the information that they should have to impart to the, the students that they're going to teach. Mm-hmm. But this has got to do, I guess, with the fact that you have an incident occur to you and you may have to wait five, five years, sometimes even 10 years. Just to wait solve that for problem. the opportunity to come when you can change it. Okay. okay. And so there's a philosophy behind that? Yes. This is something that I guess I sort of reminded myself all the time. Mm. When I was a school teacher at 
the Kamiki Intermediate School, now Kamiki Middle School, Kamiki Intermediate School, teachers were considered staff, not professionals. Okay. They were considered staff. We had no unions. Ooh. The HSDA and the AFT were not in Hawaii at the time. Okay. Okay. So we were at the disposal of the principal at the school. Mm -hmm. So as staffers, then we were assigned to monitor the recesses, go out there and watch the youngsters, make sure that they don't hurt each other. We had no planning period of our own. We had no teacher's room where we could at least make a phone call or maintain our own business. Mm -hmm. uh, we were not treated as professionals. And I, I felt that this, there's something lacking here, that teachers were not given the kind of respect that they should have right. after all the, all the schooling that they've had and the responsibility that they have. Huge responsibility. They should be treated like faculty. Mm -hmm. Until a phone call came in one day telling me that my young child, the youngest child, was taken to the hospital because she was hurt. And so... What happened? I hurried down to the office and I said, I'd like to call the school and find out what hospital she was taken to yeah. and what the condition was. Mm -hmm. And the staff at the office told me, we're so sorry, but administrative rules prohibit us from letting you people use our telephones for personal phone calls. What do you mean you people? <laughs> The parents? The personal phone calls. So if you want to call to find out, there's a te public telephone up there on 18th Avenue. Whose neck did you ring? Did you ring anybody's neck right there? <laughs> no. Okay. What could I do? But I chalked it up Okay. in my so-called book. Mm -hmm. And I thought, the day is going to come, my dears, when this is going to change. Yes. And it did, because the following year, I organized the very first state teachers' union. Nice. Yeah. And it really wasn't a union. It was a uh, group of people under the, uh, under the, um, uh, Charlie Kendall was his name. Mm -hmm. He was, uh, oh, come on, you know, HGA. Hawaii okay. Government Employees Association. Right, so it's the beginning of this yes. whole I, union. I, so I made a phone call, a very uh -huh. important phone call. I picked up the phone call, Charlie at HGA, and I said, teachers are government employees too. Yes. And you people don't have a teacher's chapter within your organization. Mm -hmm. We teachers need representation yes. in the legislature. We need, le we need representation to fight for our rights because at least we should be respected as professionals. Absolutely. Charlie Kendall says, you're right. Absolutely right. And so I said, well, let's draft a charter. So he came up to my house and we sat on my patio and we drafted the, the first chapter called the teacher's chapter of the HGA. And I wouldn't sign it unless number one, I had the full endorsement of the whole HGA employees organization. Mm -hmm. Number two, that they would support me in my presentations at the legislature, because I would want to make presentations sure. and for our rights and so forth. And number three, that I we would have 
not only their support, but their cooperation mm -hmm. in any other concerns that we may have. So he said, absolutely, no it's question Very strategic, about it. very good. Yeah. So we, I went out there and organized thousands of teachers, willingly joining the teachers chapter of the HGA. And so we can, we, you can call it the first teachers union if mm -hmm. you want, but uh, it was an organization that was sorely needed at the time. Sure. Now, when HSTA then and the HEA and the AFP came into town mm -hmm. and they were organized as unions and they had representation in Washington, D.C., then I went to the HGA and I said, let's dis disassemble this whole thing. Let's drop the teacher's chapter because I'll let the teachers join whichever union that they want. So they chose another union? Yeah. So I told the teachers they can join either the the HEA or the AFT because they have representation in Washington and they're organized as unions. Very whereas nice. our chapter is just a chapter of a local organization. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but but it took me years before I could complete that whole cycle. It's just constant struggle, constant pushing through, That's constant. Right. And Thinking about it and having the That's right, right. But what I, frame what of I mind. What I tell my it. young people when I talk to them is mm -hmm. this when you see something that is unfair or unjust, yes. just don't laugh it off or turn away from it or forget it. Chalk it up, remember it, and when you have the opportunity to change it, change it. That's been my motto for all of my career. Right. Now, there's bigger things that you've also been pivotal in changing here in Hawaii. Oh, yes. One of the things is the bombing of Koho Olave, which a lot of yeah. people my age and older clearly remember, and I think the younger generations sometimes don't even know about. Yes. But you were pivotal in having the U.S. Navy cease yes, right. all bombing really, really quickly. And, and, and the irony of it is it could have been done so much sooner. It's almost like they didn't... Did people not want to go the extra mile to do it well, or to stop you it? you know, I don't have the evidence to prove this, but I do know for sure that the bombing of Koholave was sanctioned by the President of the United States, yes. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, by presidential order. Right. Executive order. An executive order can be overturned by another president. Mm -hmm. So you see, all of this fuss about Kaholave was going on and on and on. But who was president of the United States? A Republican. So the Democrats never went to the Republican president to try to overturn it. Wow. So they didn't really try. Well, I don't know. See, I can't prove it. Because I have no evidence that they knew or that they even tried. All I know is at the time that this whole thing occurred, the, way, the reason why it occurred at all was because Senator Matsunaga, United States Senator Matsunaga died in April. Whenever you have an empty seat, you've got to find people who who can fill it. Right. And uh, you want to fill it 
somebody you want to you want you want to put up candidates who can win. Right. So the Republicans came to me. I was a member of the House then, House mm -hmm. of Representatives. They came to me and they asked me to uh, run for the Senate, okay. for the United States Senate in Matsunaga seat. In the meantime, the Democrats then uh, went ahead and appointed Dan Akaka mm -hmm. to fill the vacancy as soon as Matsunaga died, so that they'll be an incumbent. See. Yep. So then I mulled it over, uh, wondering whether I should just really do it because, after all, I had won election to the House of Representatives on two occasions already. My third time would not have been so difficult. I think I could have won again. Right. Uh, it was my husband who said, why are you running for office at all? You always said, and you still think, that you're running for office so that you can do a good job, so right. you can do something to help the people, not so that you can enhance yourself or that you can hold a position and enjoy the power that comes with it. Because that's not what the position's for. That's not why you run. Mm -hmm. run. That's not why you ran, and I think you know it. I said, yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. So he says, so why not run for the United States Senate? Mm -hmm. You win, you win. You lose, you lose. You haven't lost anything, really. Because you never thought that you had to run mm -hmm. for your own purpose. So I said, you know, I think you're right. Why don't we take a chance and do it? So we sat on it for a while until the phone call came in from President George H.W. Bush. He says, I'd like to talk to you. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, Mr. President. Uh, what would you like to do? He says, I'd like, like you to come to the Oval Office. Wow. So I said, could you send a car to pick me up? Because, you know, I don't want to go through all the security. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, we will send somebody up to pick you up, which they did. Very cool. <laughs> so I can get right through the security, mm -hmm. go to the Oval Office. And he asked me then to run for the United States Senate. So I said, uh, yes, I have been thinking about it. My husband is urging me to do it. He says, well, I want you to do it, I, and I'll do whatever I can to help you. Is there anything really that I can do? I said, yes, there is. Hmm. What, he says. You can stop the bombing of Kaho'olawe. He says, Kaho'o what? He turned around to uh, Sununu, who was his uh, administrative aide at the time. Mm -hmm. He says, get her to spell it for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... I did, and um, he says, well, what makes you think I can do it? I said, because it was ordered by presidential executive order by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and according to my research, one president cre can create an yes. order, another president can overturn that order. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. President, I'm saying that you can stop the bombing of Kaho'olawe, and let me tell you, what the damage it is doing to that little island. Mm -hmm. And I gave him all the details of the Hawaiians and their their religion and right. the way they observe that island as sacred. Mm -hmm. And uh, besides that, Mr. President, the bombs are falling so close to the island of Maui, which is right next door, and it's affecting your golf course. <laughs> this is what golf course? I said, the golf course that you enjoy playing on. And he said, oh, my God, turned around and said to uh, Cheney, 
see to it that this is done right away. Wow. And I'll tell you something. They did their research after that. He, he turns around and he says, well, where, where are we going to bomb then? We're, we're Find somewhere bombing. else. <laughs> I said, Mr. President, that's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> He left. Good on you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, Thank you so much. About, it, took, it took about three months or four right. months. As one native Hawaiian, you know, thank and, you. And he, he, he did it. He did it. Mm -hmm. He really did it. And, and uh, interestingly, the press gave him credit for it to, to some extent. Gave me credit, too, for it. Mm -hmm. uh, subtly. You know, it was not blown up all over the place. Because I'm but you weren't doing it for the credit. You're doing it because no. it's right. And besides that, I'm a Republican. See? Right. And it's a Republican president. And you know the, you know how the press is. So mm -hmm. They just don't feel that that's that, that important. But that's okay. That was important to the Native Hawaiian community. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that, that was one occasion that I'm very proud of. That besides the other factors that I participated in, which I am also proud of, is the uh, changing of the internment of the Japanese Americans when they were interned. Right, during World War II. Yeah, during World War II. And uh, the Civil Liberties Act was passed in 1988. And uh, it was, that act was pending in the Congress for 10 years. And when I got elected, I asked, what happened? What is it that it didn't pass? They said, well, unfortunately, it's the Republicans that are holding it up. Mm -hmm. So I immediately called my Republican leader and I said, I'd like to have a meeting with the caucus. And um, it's a very important subject. He said, okay. So they called a caucus of all the Republicans in the house, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I told them, fasten your seatbelts, guys, because I'm going to take you on a guilt trip. Good. A guilt trip that you're not going to forget, because I understand that it is you, Republicans, us Republicans, that are holding up this bill from passage. The Democrats all support it. Republicans are holding it up. And I want to know why, but I'll tell you why you should pass it. Mm -hmm. And I gave him all the horror stories about how people were dragged off without due course. Right. Just no taken away from their homes and their standing, businesses. Nothing. They were dragged off. And I said, then they were sent to, they called them internment camps. I call them concentration camps because they had people on towers with rifles mm -hmm. aimed at anyone who dared to escape. And uh, I said, I happen to have an uncle and cousins who were taken to Topaz, Utah. Till today, my cousin is known as Topaz because that's where he had to grow up. So the Civil Liberties Act finally passed in 1988 with Republican support. Finally, half the caucus that objected voted Good. in support of it, changed the direction of that whole episode. And... Uh, the matter passed with an apology right. by the president. The, the interesting thing is the staff, the White House staff, said, when time to sign the bill, Pat, the president wants you to stand right next to him. Beautiful. Because you were the key thing that switched the direction of that legislation. So every picture that you see now 
of that uh, Civil Liberties Act that passed in 1988. You're right I'm there. standing right next to him. <laughs> standing right next to him. Right. So in this last session, um, you've just finished and have published a book, A Woman in the House. And, yes. you guys, and he said it took you about two years to write and get it get it all done. <laughs> but this, this is your memoirs of yes, life growing up and then going through all uh, the years, all the, years all the things you've done politically and then after that, right? Yep. What motivated you to write a book and put all your memoirs to paper? You know, basically, I decided to put it down on paper because I lived through a very important time between territorial and statehood, mm -hmm. you know, and then from there I got into the House and Senate and then to Congress and then as head of the Small Business Administration. And I had several presidents along the way, President Reagan, President Bush. Uh, also, I had the pleasure of working with several governors. Uh, Governor Burns uh, was very instrumental in my thinking mm -hmm. about the future. And so was Governor Ariyoshi. He, he and I worked together very closely on the East-West Center and on Western Interstate Commission mm. on Higher Education. We collaborated a lot to provide opportunities for our students right. to attend mainland colleges. Mm. And, uh, but I wanted to put in writing my so-called adventures mm. and uh, hopefully that young people will read the book and get a feeling that there is nothing that they cannot do. There is no problem that cannot be solved. There is always hope, a brighter hope for the future if you plan it and if you accept divergent views and collaborate and learn to work with people and share ideas, you can get things done. And that's basically what I did for my whole political career. My children have been a big help to me uh, because they collaborated with me. <laughs> they helped me get elected, to tell you the truth. But they were always there as a reminder that this whole life is for them and their future. So I wanted to leave, I guess, the memories of the many years that I tried to make things better for all of us. It's fantastic. I, I love the fact that you put it to paper and that it's going to be basically it's, it's permanent for the next generation and the generations to come so that they can see like you said there is no problem too big yeah you know um if you have a stick long enough you can move a mountain you know you can leverage it so the same kind of concept right there's make a plan get together with the right people find out who the right people are and like you said earlier find the right time and the place. That's right. Because you see, in my time, when I was approaching the, the uh, participation in so-called politics to solve problems, we only had three women in the state House of Representatives and one woman in the state Senate. Now, we were gender-wise very skewed. Mm -hmm. We needed to have another women's opinion. Right. And so I chose a woman in the House. And the same thing occurred when I ran for Congress. There, were, there was a minimal 
amount of number of women in the House of Representatives. It always women were in the minority. Not just minority, not just women, but Asian women, women of minority That's right. uh, ethnicities. That's right. But I was the, uh, yes, I was the first Republican, too, to ever be elected to the House of Representatives. But nevertheless, it's, it's one of those situations at the time women were discriminated against. We mm-hmm. couldn't even have a credit card in our own name. Wow. We couldn't leave our earnings a pension when we worked for the state. We couldn't leave that to our husbands. It was automatic for a man's pension to go to the family, but it was not automatic for a women's, woman's pension to go to the family. Wow. I mean, all of this had to be corrected. And so the, the 28 bills that uh, I had Pat Putman draft for me, uh, she actually did the research for mm-hmm. me to find all the discriminatory laws that existed in sure. the books at the time, at the time. When I first got elected in 1968, there were 28 bills that were totally discriminatory against women. And this is at the United States level or the Hawaii level? No, at the Hawaii level. Okay. And most, a lot of it affected mainland too. Hmm. For instance, a diner's club, I couldn't get a diner's club card on the mainland in my own name. Locally, you couldn't get a loan. I couldn't get a loan in my own name. I couldn't own a home, a mortgage in my own name because I'm a woman. See, all of these laws that were on the books were egregious. Yeah. And so there were 28 of them, and I drafted the legislation to make the corrections, and 26 of them passed. Of course, not under my name, though, because I'm in the minority. So the Democrats used the, the, the intent of the legislation mm-hmm. and wrote their own measures, but the press did not, uh, shall we say, close their eyes to what was going on. So you will see in my book that I acknowledge that there were many members of the press Very good. who were brave enough and honest enough to give me credit for all the legislation that I passed, even if were introduced under a Democrat's name. So those were the days when things were harder to get done mm-hmm. uh, in, mm-hmm. in your own name as a woman. Uh, today, it's a little bit different, but then that's because we've worked so hard it, to yeah, make things Yeah, it's because different. you laid the groundwork yeah. for all that change to yeah. happen. That's right. So it was good to put this all in writing so that people don't take for granted what yeah. they have today. You know, they think that everything is the way it's always been. No. It isn't. Not at all. And it was only in 1968 when things were changed. And that's not that long ago. Not that long ago. Right. No. That's my parents' generation, right? So it's not that long ago. And I'm getting to that age now where, you know, I better write this out Mm -hmm. because uh, people are not going to remember. Right. And it's so important. And when you when you're talking about all of this stuff, in my mind, I'm envisioning men and women today don't see that things were that bad that long ago. They don't believe it. They don't believe it. Yeah. They can't. They can't possibly imagine, imagine it. that a woman couldn't get a credit card. Yeah. Today, a woman 
I mean, you, you can't keep all the credit cards that I are know. thrown at you. <laughs> it's like, well, let's bring that back. <laughs> Some people don't need credit cards. Yeah. That's me, though. But, um, no, I'm glad you put it to paper. And this is definitely um, something for my generation and younger to read and really know your history and know uh, who the forebearers are that laid out the groundwork for the path that we are walking on today. And that all the benefits that we have today, we cannot take for granted yes, where right. we got those and how we got to the point we are today. You know, and I hear so many people on social media, news, whatever, talking about how terrible this country is. It's like, whoa, yeah, it's the best place. That's I mean, right. consider, consider like just from the 1950s, <laughs> how much we have changed and advanced That's right. in equality. And I mean, are we perfect? No. Do we have more to do? Absolutely. But that's part of the progress and just continuing to to change and improve ourselves as a, as a society as we go along. But a main big point in that is the pioneers like yourself that lay the groundwork for all of us to be able to do that kind of uh, progressive actions and changes to make things better for everybody. And And always remember, no one does anything all by themselves. Correct. You know, you always have along the way, many friends, many loyal supporters, people who believe in what you're doing and support you, give you a hand when you need it. Make, so, make good grateful. teams. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So, so much. We are pleasure. so deeply honored to have you uh, come on and share your words of wisdom and some of your history and folks uh, watching again, her book. A Woman in the House by Pat Psyche. And thank you so much. You can find this at patpsyche.com, right? Mm -hmm. And it's uh, currently for sale. Audiobooks yet? Do you have audio version? Maybe not. But okay. it's an e-version, right? Okay. Thank well, you. thank you so much for coming on the show. And as always, everybody, stay happy, Hawaii.